This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with artist and writer Lisa Congdon about how she sometimes felt like an imposter. At some point, somebody's going to realize that I don't really know what I'm doing, or I sort of like taught myself how to do this. Like, I'm not really a real artist. I'm sort of faking it. Here's Debbie Millman. Lisa Congdon is a late bloomer. She didn't become a professional artist until she was in her late 30s. She's been professionally painting and illustrating and writing for about a decade now, and she's still blooming. She exhibits her paintings around the country. Her clients include MoMA, Harvard, and many others. And she's the author of six books, including Art, Inc., The Essential Guide to Building Your Career as an Artist. Her latest illustrated book is The Joy of Swimming, a celebration of our love for getting in the water. She joins me now to talk about it and her fabulous career. Lisa Congdon, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. At long last. I I feel like we've been planning this for a long time. (laughs) We have. My first question is one that I cannot believe could be true. Is it true that you were a congressional intern at 21? Yes. You were? Yes. For who? When? Where? How? Now I'm like, where did she read that? Because (laughs) it's not something I talk about very much anymore. Yeah, so when I was in college, I went to work for Norm Mineta, and he was the congressman of my home district in the San Jose area of California, and he went on to be Secretary of Transportation, I think, under Clinton and then Bush. I can't even visualize this. Well, what's interesting is that at the time... That was going to be my career path. I wanted to I wanted to get into politics. And um, that was my sort of testing ground. And I left still really enthusiastic about it, but then ended up doing other things with my life. Well, we'll talk about that in a few moments. <laughs> okay. You were born in a town in upstate New York called Niskayuna. It's right outside Schenectady, which is a little bit larger and more well-known. You moved to San Jose when you were eight years old. Yes. Was that difficult? It's a very formative year. Yeah. No, I don't remember feeling angsty about it. But according to my mother, I was really upset about leaving my friends and this community that I had grown up in, but apparently instantly fell in love with California. (laughs) Now, creativity was a big part of your childhood, mostly due to your mom. You've talked about that quite a lot. You've stated that she was like the original Martha Stewart, except she wasn't worried about things being perfect. She was all about us being messy and having fun. She was always making something, whether it was part of her art practice or she was fixing things up around the house. Even now, she is in her 70s and still has a studio where she makes things every day. I understand she also taught you how to sew. Yes. So my mom, she was a sort of like quintessential 1970s version of Martha Stewart. So maybe what does that mean? Like maybe a little hippie. She was like making bread and all kinds of things from scratch. Of course, you know, I don't know if she ever got into macrame, but we had a giant German loom in our house, and my mother was a weaver. She still is an amazing cook and a baker, and she got really into health food, so everything was. You know, my friends would come to school with, you know, Oreos and I had whole wheat chocolate chip cookies with like (laughs) carob chips and stuff. But um, she was always engaging us in different hands-on activities. You know, I can remember being like 
three and she would just put food coloring in a bowl with water and let us put things in it to see what color they turned, you know, stuff like that. You went to St. Mary's College of California. Yes. And got your degree in history. Yes. And I read that growing up, you envisioned yourself a lawyer or a politician, which makes sense now that we know about your um, congressional internship. What made you decide to pursue that line of work, given how creative the environment was when you were growing up and, and clearly what you're doing now? When I went to college, I didn't really know what I wanted to study exactly. And I think I sort of signed up to be a liberal arts major because then you can sort of take classes in whatever area you want. And I happened to have this professor in the history department. I took probably some basic history course, and he was phenomenal. Like, he changed my relationship to, you know, my interest in what was happening in the world, both currently and in the past. He was such a passionate lecturer and told versions of history that I had never heard before. And it wasn't just me. Like, several of my friends and I, like, changed our majors to history because of him. And I've always really been interested in history. And so I continued even after I left school and didn't end up getting my PhD in history or anything. I continued to read a lot of history. And it's now sort of becoming infused in my work in different ways, too. So You ended up getting a teaching certificate at San Francisco State. And your first job out of college was as an elementary school teacher in San Francisco Unified. Yeah. What made you decide to go into teaching? Where where was the shift from historian, politician, lawyer to teacher? I think that in my junior or senior year, whenever you start to sort of take all of the exams that are required to go either to graduate school or to law school, personally, I started to think about what would be required financially and otherwise. I got intimidated, quite frankly. And I knew that I wanted to do something with my life that was meaningful, but I started to question law and, you know, going and studying, getting my PhD. So I thought, well, I can always do that in a few years. I'm just going to move to San Francisco and work for a while first. So I actually got a job in a law firm and I was miserable. Now, it may have been the law firm and not law per se. Who knows? If I had landed in the right law firm, I might have ended up going back to school to become a lawyer. But in the meantime, I started to question all these things about my life. And I was living in San Francisco in the early 90s, which was a magical, magical experience. And my interest started to broaden and social change was something that I was really interested in and education felt like a really important area of work. And this was in the beginning of the Clinton administration and I was really became very passionate about education. And I so I decided to go back to school, get my teaching credential, and I ended up teaching for a good eight years and then left to do other things. But what grade did you teach? What topics did you teach? In the seven or eight years that I was in the classroom, I taught anywhere from first grade to fourth grade, which is multiple subjects. And that's what they train you to do is to teach a little bit of math, a little bit of reading. And you've said that you went into teaching right out of college because you wanted to give something back to the world. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, your whole identity was wrapped up in what you gave back every day. That was how you felt good about yourself. And when I read that, it it made me wonder, did you feel bad about yourself? Otherwise, were you having a crisis of self-esteem? Possibly. Um, It wasn't necessarily that I felt bad about myself, more that, you know, it's sort of like I've always been a very sensitive person. And I think that I, you know, I wanted to always do something with my life where I could 
impact other human beings in some way. And that's probably why I felt like an inadequate teacher, because I really wanted to make a difference. And that's a tall order for, you know, a young person in the lives of children. And a lot of the kids that I taught were pretty, you know, coming from troubled homes and backgrounds and things like that. But it's always just been something that has felt important to me. Even when I became an artist, I started to feel guilty because I was like, how am I going to give back to the world? This this feels more like more of a selfish act than what I was doing before. Um, yeah, I found ways to give back as an artist, of course. But I don't know if it was a reflection of um, trying to counterbalance something else inside of me or just more, sort of more part of who I am. I don't know. For the first 15 years of your career, you either worked in a classroom or at an education nonprofit that worked with high poverty students in the Bay Area. What did you do with the nonprofit? So um, about the eighth year of my teaching, the school that I worked for got a giant grant um, from the Hewlett and Annenberg Foundation. And um, they needed somebody to coordinate the efforts, like what we were going to use the money for in the school for improving what we did. And so they basically moved me from the classroom to this coordinator position. And then the organization the following years basically poached me. (laughs) (laughs) We really enjoyed working together. So then I went to work for the nonprofit. And it was kind of this weird move. Like I I think I thought I was always going to be a teacher or maybe eventually be a principal. But I went to work at this nonprofit and it ended up being an, an amazing experience because I got to sort of give back in the way that was really important to me. But at the same time, I was like removed from the very stressful situation of working in a big public school. Um, I had an office and, you know, it you was like kind a of, big time executive. Lisa. Yeah, I like went I went from like being this scrappy elementary school teacher to going to an office. And and actually what's interesting is, you know, when I was a teacher, I would go to work from, I don't know, sometimes six in the morning to like eight at night. I felt like I worked all the time. Like when you're a teacher, it feels like your job is never done. And then I went to work for this organization where I got to work at nine and I left at five. And I I had all of this time outside of my job. That's actually how I started making art was in this time outside of my job that I didn't have when I was a teacher. So it led to something amazing. So, But I did read that you worked your way up to becoming an associate director. Yes. And though you loved it, I read that you began to dread going to work in the morning. Um, was it because of the stress? Was it because you felt like you were unsatisfied or unfulfilled with what you were doing sort of in the grand scheme of things. Talk about that. Yeah. So on the one hand, being a classroom teacher was really um, kind of stressful because I was dealing with all these little personalities and their parents and everything. On the other hand, it was really kind of this really enriching, creative environment. And then when I went to work at the office, um, I didn't have as much of that stress, but I also was more bored than I had ever been. Um, you know, I wasn't doing all this creative problem solving like I had been as a classroom teacher. And yeah, it felt like something was sort of missing for me. At the time, I didn't know what it was missing. I mean, I eventually found the thing that was missing. Um, but you found the thing that was missing in such an intriguing practically accidental way. You're bored at work. You have more time than you'd ever had. You decide, I think I'll take some art classes. 15 years later, you're one of the most successful illustrators and artists working today. So there's something so incredible about making that change. It wasn't just, oh, I'm going to fill up some time. It's I'm going to change my life radically 
and become somebody completely different yet entirely the same. Well, it's interesting. When I first started taking art classes, I had no intention of becoming a professional I know, artist. I know. And so that didn't happen for like five years. But five years is yeah, a minuscule it, it, You're right. So granted, you're right. Like it did happen really fast when you think about it. But I think there are a couple things that contributed to that. First of all, this idea that you mentioned earlier about sort of wanting to make a difference in the world. And then, you know, I had always sort of been searching for that thing, but I hadn't found it yet. And so when I discovered, you know, this idea of making art or having a creative practice in my life, some bells went off inside of me. And again, it wasn't like I'm going to become a well-known artist or a successful artist. It was like, oh, this is the thing that makes me want to get out of bed in the morning more than anything I've ever done. And so there was that. And then I think part of my fast track to success was also that I had had all of this work experience and challenge and I understood the importance of discipline and of organizing my time. And and so I really got to focus on developing my art skill um, because I sort of already had a lot of the, the business part of it down. As I was researching your trajectory, I was struck by how much you seem to plan for a future you didn't even know you were planning for. So while you made decent money at your job, you've written quite extensively about how before you decided to go out on your own as a practicing professional artist, you needed to get your financial house in order. Mm -hmm. And you wrote this about the experience. This is the dirty part of the business that no one ever talks about. All of the other stuff, making art, working with clients, promoting the business, etc., felt easy and fun. But I was in debt after years of careless spending while I had a decent-paying full-time job. I knew that if I was going to be self-employed, I needed to pay off my debt and become as adept as possible at managing my money. How did you go about doing that, Lisa? It's funny that sometimes the more money you make, the more irresponsible you can be you with your no money. You money, more problems. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's what happened to me. So I had health insurance and all the things. And so, you know, I racked up my credit cards. And then by the time I was ready to, like, leave my job and start an art career, I had debt. And I did leave my job anyway. I wouldn't recommend doing that. But I quickly consolidated my debt and paid it off in, like, two years. Yeah, and you were considerably in debt. I think I read $60,000. Yep, yep. And that might have been another reason that, like, my career hightailed because I had this motivation to get rid of this debt and start over um, that I had never had before. And so I I got rid of the debt and, like, literally lived so simply. And I, at that time, you know, was just starting the relationship that I'm in now. So I did – that helped because I got to share some expenses and we moved in together pretty quickly. I am now – have been debt-free for – like seven years or Congratulations. Thank you. You're taking art classes. Mm-hmm. You're about 31 years old. You start taking mm-hmm. your art classes. You still had a job until you were 39 years old. Yes. In 2007, after you left your career in education, yes. you started an upper market gallery shop called Rare Device that you co-owned with a friend. What kind of shop was it and why did you decide to do that? Well, it's interesting. I had been toying around with the idea of leaving my nonprofit job but I knew that the the income I was then making as an artist wasn't going to cut my rent and all the other things that I needed to pay for. So I had been scheming in my head how I could do this. Around that time, I had a show. There was a rare device here in New York, in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And I had 
a show there. At the time, I wasn't co-owner of the store. This woman who I didn't know invited me to have a show there. I did. We became really good friends. Turns out she was moving back to California, and she was like, I want to open a rare device in San Francisco. And we just started talking, and I was like, this could be the perfect segue for me to leave my job but not rely solely on my art income while I'm starting out. So it was kind of perfect because we both contributed a little bit of capital, her more than I did, to opening the store in San Francisco. Eventually, we closed the New York store and just focused on the San Francisco store. And it was great because it gave me the flexibility to make art and try to build my career. But I also worked at the store and took a draw from the store. And it was also gave me a lot of great experience in retail and in gallery. We had a little gallery, so I got to sort of experience and learn about the both ends of the gallery world and the retail world and the licensing world. And so it ended up being like a great learning experience as well. And then by 2011, my business partner, Rena, wanted to, you know, have a kid and start a different business. And I was ready to become a full-time artist. I was like at that point making enough money. So we sold the store. The store still exists. But it was this great transitional experience. Lisa, how do you go from taking art classes at night to making a decision to become an artist full-time? How does that happen? How did you get the sense that that was something you could even do? Well, I was really lucky because I started putting my work into the world um, or I started making work around the time that the Internet was becoming a space for creative people to share their work and build connections. And this was around 2003, 2004. And so at the time I joined Flickr and, you know, there was no Instagram, no Tumblr, no Facebook even, you know, but I, I found these places where I could share what I was making and I was connecting with all kinds of people all over the world who were doing similar things. Some were already professional artists, some were not. And so that was really the beginning for me. And I got to see what was possible in a way that 10 years earlier, I never would have seen because this space didn't exist. And it gave me a picture for what if I worked hard enough and got to be a good enough artist and made the right choices, it gave me a picture for what my life could look like. You sell your shop in February of 2011. So five years ago, you decide to pursue life as an artist full time. And you suddenly went from not only thinking of yourself as an artist, but now you're a person who has a business. You are a businesswoman and an artist. Did it feel different? Yes, it did. And I think in particular, things really changed for me in 2011. Like, I went from getting up every morning and sort of checking my email, like, oh, would somebody please hire me or email me about a job or show some interest in my work to literally overnight just everything changed for me. And it wasn't one particular thing. It was like the timing, the confluence. It was like my what Malcolm Gladwell call, calls the your tipping, tipping point, point, right? Yeah. Since then, it's been sort of crazy. How did you go about getting your first clients? Well, one of my first clients was like Poketo, which is this company based in LA. And at the time, they were making these kind of weird wallets made with artists' art. And then like the National Poetry Foundation, like they found me on Flickr, basically, um, which is like the first form of visual social media for artists. And then the big break for me was Chronicle Books. So I had an art show at a little gallery in San Francisco, and I had gotten some amazing press, and the show sold out like that day, and a 
tons of people came and some folks from Chronicle Books came and they went back to their boss and were like, you should check out this artist's work. It might make really cool stationery. And so I had a meeting with one of the editorial directors at the Gift Division there. And that was like the beginning of my journey with Chronicle. 2011 was also the year you published your first book, A Collection a Day, which chronicled your project from the previous year of documenting daily photographs of one of your own collections or a painting of an imagined collection. And you photographed and drew your stockpiles of miniature globes, vintage ephemera, school supplies, kitchen enamelware, pink erasers, seashells, Aubrey Beardsley matchboxes, plastic animal charms, mid-century paperback novels, vintage bobbins, that was one of my favorite, and German stamps. What made you decide to do this? I decided that I wanted to do like a year-long challenge. And those things are really popular now. Like people do month-long challenges and art challenges and all kinds of, you know, 100 days of making. But at the time, you know, I was one of the first people to sort of popularize this idea of a personal challenge. And I got this idea that I wanted to photograph my collections and I photographed them on an imaginary grid and kind of show off everything that I collected. Although I ended up accumulating more collections as the I was going to ask you, how much yeah. did you have to buy after? Well, I, I, mean, I, how I had probably, I had enough to last the year, but I wanted to keep it interesting. So I was like upping the ante by like going out <laughs> into flea markets and looking for interesting things. And in addition, I ended up also drawing imaginary collections to sort of mix things up a little bit and infuse my drawing into the project. And then at the end of the year, we published it into a book, which again, wasn't the original intent. It just sometimes happens. The project kind of went viral and, and you know, got me press in the New York Times and with Martha Stewart Living and like all of these amazing things happened. And since then has gained me jobs. Like the job that I got with the MoMA was basically the drawing as a of result. The wonderful things in their collection. Yeah, yeah. it was a result of that. In 2013, you followed that book with a commission to illustrate the book Tender Buttons, Gertrude Stein's book about objects. And you stated this on the website Brain Pickings. Every now and again, an illustration project comes your way that feels like sheer kismet. I've had an infatuation with the life of Gertrude Stein since I was in my early 20s, and I've always been intrigued by her bizarre poetry. Chronicle Books gave me an extreme amount of creative freedom to illustrate Tender Buttons, which was at the same time both glorious and extremely challenging. And so, of course, I need to know what was challenging about it. Well, if you've ever read Tender Buttons, it's absolute nonsense. Um, you know, Gertrude Stein wrote a lot of nonsense poetry. It's just like wordplay, basically. People have been trying to make sense of it for decades. Ben and Finnegan's Wake, right? Yeah. And so to illustrate something that has no literal sense is extremely challenging. But if you think about it, it's also so freeing because you just have to find that one reference in each poem. And it's a series of poems, short poems that spark something in your imagination and then draw a picture of it. And so, yeah, super challenging. But that also made it like one of the best illustration jobs I've ever had. It's really one of my favorite of oh, your books. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You've been commissioned to illustrate the covers and interiors of many, many books now. You've published two books of handwritten quotes, Whatever You Are, Be a Good One, and Fortune Favors the Brave. And you've also been illustrating a number of all-age coloring books. You are the perfect person to ask this question. Why do you think coloring books for adults are so popular now? I think it's this meditative quality of being able to sort of like 
express your creativity or some sort of experience of making something, taking something that's already existing and, and making it come to life. And I think that that's what's so appealing for a lot of people. Um, what's it like for you to really see people calming. drawing in the coloring books that you've made? It's really cool. Like, you know, some people are so creative and there's even this class, a couple of classes about like how to color in coloring books using watercolors and color pencils and teaching people how to do shading and things like that. Like people send me pictures of how they've colored them and it's almost unrecognizable because they're so um, layered and amazing, you know. In the introduction to your 2014 book, Art Inc., Author, podcaster, entrepreneur, Jonathan Field states, for some reason, when you hit a certain age and a certain level of seriousness and you start calling yourself an artist, making a living at it becomes a source of great controversy. People who have nothing to do with the exchange between you and those who would enjoy your work start to pass judgment. Money, they proclaim, bastardizes both the process and the output. And Lisa, I'm assuming that since this is in the introduction to your book, you've experienced this and and very well may agree with it. Um, Why do you think this happens? In the beginning of Art, Inc., I write about the starving artist myth. And part of the starving artist myth is not only that you're destined to a life of eating ramen, but the idea that 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 actually somehow makes being an artist more noble, that somehow this idea that if you're sort of making money from your work, it's not as pure an experience, um, that maybe you're driven by different motivations. If you're doing commercial work or if your work becomes popular, then you're sort of influenced in a different way. While that may be true, I was like, well, I don't really care because I want to make a living doing this. And I'm still always going to be true to my, you know, core values. And I still feel like, you know, it's possible for me to make a living doing this thing. And it's possible for other people to make a living doing it. And that doesn't make it wrong. Without an illustration agent, you're the person then that also has to negotiate with your clients. Is that uncomfortable for you? Yeah, I have um, I have a studio manager who does a lot of that for me. And then my wife, Clay, also manages my contracts. But in fact, this morning, I had to s- talk about money with a potential client. It is often uncomfortable, but I've gotten really good good at it. And I really have a strong sense of um, how much money I deserve to be paid for certain things. That's much harder to wrap your head around and put your finger on when you're first starting out. I think that's something that comes with experience. And it was very convenient for me that I had an agent in the first seven years of my career because she taught me a lot about what I was worth and what my work was worth. And um, when I decided to leave her and go out on my own, that was a big step for me. But I realized I was ready. Another thing that I I was really intrigued by in Art, Inc. was you declare this. One thing I know for sure is that to be a successful artist, you must start with the simplest proclamation. I am an artist. It's a basic assertion, but seeing yourself as an artist, legitimate and genuine, can be transformational. How did you get to that place in your life? Was it scary for you? Did you feel... Do you feel 100% comfortable with the moniker artist now? I'm 100% comfortable now, but for years I felt like an imposter. I mean, I was experiencing success and that was actually when the imposter syndrome really hit home because I thought, oh, 
I'm getting paid to do this. At some point, somebody's going to realize that I don't really know what I'm doing or I sort of like taught myself how to do this. Like I'm not really a real artist. I'm sort of faking it. I don't feel that way at all anymore. But for many years, that was how I felt because I just had to pinch myself every day. Like, I can't believe I get to do this and that people are taking me and my work seriously. Oh, I can't begin to tell you how many people have sat in the chair you're sitting in now and have tried to explain their success as luck. Yeah. And I just don't buy it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's part of why I wrote that in the beginning of Art Inc. because it feels so important to me, especially for the future of the arts and the future of being an artist or a designer, that you know we have to really own it as um, something that's worthwhile and something that we need to be paid well to do. This is not a joke profession. You know, we work hard and um, we have real talent and. Um, it's funny, like people will come to my book signings and they'll put the book on Art Inc. on the table and I'll sign it. And I'll say, so I'll say, are, are you an artist or what kind of artist are you? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, I don't know. I'm not really an artist. But they're buying my book because right. they want they to be, to, be they an wanna, artist. Right. And it's almost this level of shame, you know, like until you've made it or something, you can't really proclaim yourself as an artist. And I think it's particularly bad in women. So that's something I'm always trying to fight. You have such an unusual story coming into your second career with such success. And in a recent interview on the Fast Company website, you state, I think almost everything I do now I was not capable of at 25. And it's not just because I have more knowledge or savvy now about how to run a successful business or that I know more about the power of discipline. Those things are important, sure. But the most essential and beautiful thing about getting older is that you also acquire this thing called perspective. So I want to ask you how perspective has helped you and what has it helped you with? I just take things way less seriously. So I find that I'm just way less stressed out about taking risks or putting my work out there. It's like we're all scared and we all have anxiety. It doesn't ever go away, but there's a way that I sort of am able to live with my fear and do stuff anyway that I because I have perspective that the world's not going to come crashing to an end. I'm not going to die, you know. It's so I'll learn how to rely on yourself a little bit yeah. more. Yeah, I, I realize like, you know, stuff happens and sometimes the stuff is hard, but you always, I, you know, you get through it. I've been through some hard stuff in my life and I've gotten through all of it and I know that I can can get through it again. And yeah, that's part of the part of getting older that I think is the most amazing. Let's talk about your brand new book. The Joy of Swimming, Our Celebration of Our Love of Getting in the Water. That's a big title. Yes. <laughs> we went round and round about that title, let me tell you. And you were a professional swimmer for a while. Not professional, but I was a competitive swimmer. Competitive, that's the word. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the photograph that you include in the book. I believe it's in the book. It might have been something I saw in my <laughs> research. But you with lots of medals, sort of Michael Phelps-like with your medals. Yeah. Well, in 2006, I went to the Gay Games to compete. That was like my last big meet. That meet was like an incredible meet for me. And I caught like all these gold and silver medals. And I was on all of these like champion relay teams. I think one of my relays may have even set to record. Of course, that was with three other people. But um, it was really an amazing experience. And I had been traveling all over the world to swim and compete um, for about 11 years leading up to that point. But 
that photo you're referring to, which isn't in the book, but is sort of out there, um, is just this picture of my chest covered in my medals. Yeah, and, it's Michael Phelps-esque. Yeah, it's I so know, good. I know. I, I, I kind of love that photo. <laughs> <laughs> and so you decided to write about both famous and non-famous people and their relationship to swimming. And one of the, I think, little secrets about your abilities, Lisa, is not only are you a wonderful artist and a wonderful illustrator and hand letterer, you're also a wonderful writer. Oh, thank you. And so I wanted to read just a little bit from the first chapter when you write about your relationship to swimming. It was a beautiful California day during the summer of 1977, and Queens, We Are the Champions, was blasting from someone's boombox. The Shadowbrook Splashers, my childhood swim team, had just won the championship meet. We danced and screamed in victorious revelry, all of us barefoot, nine-year-olds and teenagers alike, our tan bodies clad only in faded team suits, our mouths red from eating cherry-flavored jello blocks. Those were the glory days of my childhood, the summers, the morning practices, the swim meets on Saturdays, the smell of chlorine and everything, especially my hair, straw dry and green from pool water. I lived for summers, and I spent nearly every available minute of them at the swimming pool down the block from my family's home in a suburban subdivision of San Jose, California's Almaden Valley. The pool was not only where I swam, but also where, over luxuriously long summer days, I played in the grass, made friends, ate lunch, read books, and where I learned about disco music and flirting and card games. It was where I first became independent and where I first became aware of my physical strength. So wonderful, Lisa. Such a wonderful, wonderful book. Thank you. My last question for you today is about what you're working on now. You're working on writing and illustrating a book about women over 40 who are kicking serious ass. Yes. Your quote, not mine. (laughs) But I wish it was. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so this is another sort of like personal project that I got to or passion of mine that I got to turn into a book. Um, It comes out in 2017 and there's no title yet. My titles tend to come last after the book is written, but it's a collection of essays by, interviews with, and profiles of women over 40 who are either currently doing amazing things, have interesting stories to tell about getting older, have hit the apex of their career at an older age, um, have done either amazing physical feats or other things that you would consider more common among younger people. And um, I'm so excited about this book. I think this is I have... such a great book to be working on. I mean, not only are you the person that probably knows this story better than anyone that I can think of, I think it's so important to show people that anything worthwhile takes a long time. It's something I say over and over and over again. We're living in a day and age where people, they, they feel bad about themselves if they don't succeed by the time they're 30. This is really about understanding that your life is long and you never know where it will take you. Well, Lisa, I really, truly look forward to having you back on the show when that book comes out to talk all about what it means to spend time 
making something happen as opposed to wishing that it would happen quickly. Exactly. And thank you for showing all of us, everyone, men, women, young, old alike, that it is possible to make your life what you want it to be at any age. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. You can learn more about Lisa Congdon at lisacongdon.com. And her remarkable new book is titled The Joy of Swimming, A Celebration of Our Love of Getting in the Water. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is produced exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. 